You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're continuing our look at the topic of abortion, since this is January, the month of Roe v. Wade, and I like to get people thinking about it this month. It's been about 44 years, if I'm correct, with my history, since Roe v. Wade has come about, and how many children have died because of this decision. Well, my guest today is Elijah Thompson from the Christian Apologetics Alliance. He is the host of a the Feeder Position, a pro-life bioethics podcast dedicated to having open and honest discussions about abortion and related topics from a pro-life perspective. His goal is to promote the equality of all human beings, not because of what they can do, but because of who they are believes that human life and human rights ought to be respected from womb to tomb. Elijah graduated with a bachelor's in biology and a minor in philosophy, so he found bioethics to be an easy fit for his academic interests and has experience working with cell cultures, including stem cells. He currently lives with his wife and two sons in Buffalo, New York, and attends a church where he and his wife both volunteer as youth leaders. So, um, Elijah, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thank you very much, Nick. I'm happy to be here. Now, since my audience probably doesn't know who you are, can you uh, give us a little bit of information about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Sure. I um, Well, so when I first entered college, I was kind of one of those college students that just went because I was told that I have to. Um, my, my mom was like, oh, you should go to college and do some things in, in communications or you need a degree in one way or another. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I was kind of floating all over the place. Um, and I remember kind of being – like, you know, looking back on it now, I remember kind of being lost in most of my beliefs. Um, and throughout, so I was actually becoming a Christian. Um, I became a Christian in college. Um, it was interesting as somewhat of a side note, but um, I became a Christian because one of my philosophy professors started to um, point out that there were some people who believed the Bible and some people that didn't. And those people um, that did not believe the Bible still called themselves Christians. And then he started explaining certain um, um, perspectives on Christianity that I was like, well, I don't, I think that's kind of silly. Um, he started, he started, uh, talking basically about young earth creationism, which at the point, at the time I was not a Christian and I did not know that anybody believed a young earth creation perspective. And as being a, uh, what, what I would call now an internet atheist before atheism became a thing and before memes became a thing. Admitting um, I, a problem is a first step to recovery. <laughs> yes, yes, it, it definitely is. But um, so I, I initially went and, and I went to the computer lab and I went to uh, YouTube and I started picking on some of these dumb Christians who believe they're dumb things and kind of got my butt handed to me in argument. Then I started looking more into it and uh, essentially adopted the Christian perspective just to win arguments online. And I remember um, 
having a, a discussion with somebody and I, I laid out like the minimal facts argument for the resurrection of Christ and I sent it and I'm rereading it to make sure there's no typos or anything. And then I'm like, this is before I'm a Christian. And I'm like, wow, okay. Um, maybe, maybe if what I'm saying is accurate, then, uh, I think I have a little bit to think about when it comes to, you know, spiritual issues. And a couple more steps later, I became a Christian. And then what that inspired me to do is to look more into apologetics um, the the apologetics interest led me to looking into evolution. Evolution led me into looking into um, basically biology in general. And at this point, I switched over from my major, which was at the time education, and I became a biology major, um, mostly because I really was obsessed with uh, like genetics and cell biology and stuff like that. I really liked the the microscopic biology stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, I had to go down to being part-time in school for a, a variety of reasons, and so I wanted to declare a minor. And I was like, well, I don't really want to minor in anything uh, you know, that's too difficult, <laughs> like chemistry. I hated chemistry. But I, I did, because of my apologetics interest, I did have a somewhat of an affinity for philosophy. And uh, basically, I had enough, I had enough philosophy – I had enough time to be able to minor in philosophy and graduate in normal time. So I basically, I ended up minoring in philosophy with my major in biology, which apparently confused a lot of people because those parent, those two things don't seem to mix very well. I think they mix great, but a lot of people disagree. Um, and so near one of, near the end of my semester or near the end of my academic career, I suppose, if you want to call it that during my bachelor's, I took a bioethics class in the bioethics class. I was actually one of so there were there were 25 people total in that class, uh, 12 biology students, 12 philosophy students, and me. They opened up one additional seat because the, the class double dipped. And so I was – that was the guy that understood what a single nucleotide polymorphism was while simultaneously understanding what Aristotelian metaphysics was. And so I, I was able to kind of – you know, help out both side, both friends, both friend groups in that class. And I remember there was a discussion. It wasn't like an official lesson or anything like that. Um, it, it eventually ended up being a, an official lesson, but I remember having a discussion with a handful of people in that class about abortion. And at the time I didn't really know much about it. I knew that, you know, as a Christian community, we are generally speaking pro-life. Um, but as, as far as a defense, I really didn't know. And so, um, having an interest in apologetics and having an interest in philosophy and biology, I was like, well, there may, let's see if there's anything out there that can um, rebut what some of the people were saying about the violinist and other uh, strong analogies from bodily, bodily autonomy. And we'll get into what that is later on in the show. What was that? We'll get into what that is later on in the show. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, this is the this is just how I got into this. Is so, um, so I started list. So I started listening to what my opponents were saying, or who I thought were my opponents, and uh, the pro lifers in the in the little discussion really didn't have much to say. Um, I knew from my biology studies studies that there was uncontroversial that the that the unborn was in fact a human being, but whether or not that those other arguments could go through were was something I had to look up, and so what I ended up doing was. 
I, at this point, I became a little bit obsessed with podcasting, not podcasting myself, but podcasts in exist that, you know, other podcasts that, that happen to exist. And I, I Googled something like pro-life defense podcast. And I, I ended up finding, um, a podcast called life report that is no longer, they're not longer, no longer producing episodes. As far as I know, um, I've referred I've tried to refresh my iTunes feed multiple times because the content was so great, but it's, uh, if they're not making anything else now, at least on iTunes. Um, but what I did was I, there were about 300 episodes and I went through all 300 episodes in probably about a month because I had a job that allowed me to do it and I drove pretty far for school. So I just downed all these, all these podcasts. I got to the end and that's when they were basically cutting off their ties with this, uh, because the, the, the guy that was hosting it, Josh Brom, he was going in a different direction. So the podcast was kind of stopping. Um, and I'm sorry if you hear something in the background that my, my wife has friends coming over. Um, but so I, at this time I was like, you know, I, I could re-listen to these podcasts and I could listen to, to debates by, you know, with Scott Klusendorf and stuff like that. But I'm like, I need another podcast and I couldn't find one. I found the 40 Days for Life podcast, but that was – it was more interviews and like activism and I wanted something that had to do with um, – the bioethics of it, you know, a really strong defense of the pro-life position when they take the, the, ar the arguments from the pro-choicers seriously. And given my background, my ability to, um, I was actually working in marketing. I'm, I'm currently working in marketing and not sales, but marketing mostly. And, um, that I have a desire to get this message out. I was like, Hey, you know what? I'll start a podcast. And so it took me about a year to actually finally launch it because you know how it works when you're like, Oh, it's gotta be perfect. Gotta be perfect. But it's never perfect. Mm. Um, I took my imperfect podcast and I launched it uh, only after I, I had to come up with a good name. That was what had to be perfect. And I, and I was given by God, I'm absolutely convinced that I was given by God at three o'clock in the morning when I was w woken out of a dead sleep the fetal position. It works perfectly. It's a double entendre. It's, it's marvelous. And I, and I wrote it down in my phone and thankfully I did because I had forgotten it the next day. Um, and so I, I, I ended up buying the, um, the website and then was like, well, now I can't not do this cause I have the website. I'm paying money for it. So at that point I ended up launching the podcast. Um, and now we are actually, I think it's a level episode 22 is the one that I just recorded. So that's, uh, that's from, from a to a to Z there. Mm. Yeah, how long have you been doing that podcast? Um, well, it was it's kind of interesting because it's sort of on and off. Um, my first episode was at the beginning of April of last year, mm. but I I wanted to do a weekly podcast, but um, we ended up having well, I have a toddler and a a newborn son at home, and so they were I was going pretty good, and then it's kind of faded out for like a month or so, and occasionally I'll skip a week. So one of the things I'm working on is being more consistent, but I've been doing it since April. Or one of the benefits of a weekly podcast is in the sense that you do get to be your own boss. Yeah, right, exactly. Now, now we're here to talk about abortion, but I am curious from your story. I mean, I've interacted so much with internet atheists, and many times it can seem like talking to a brick wall <laughs> and such. What do you think made your case different, and what do you think Christians can learn from it? Um, well, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. I think a lot of what it was, was the patience of the people that I was dealing with. Um, and the fact that I was actually willing to be wrong. 
a lot of times, a lot of times, you know, you can be as patient as possible and the other person can be as, as smart as possible or whatever. But if, if one of the two people are just going to disagree and no one is willing to be corrected, um, then it's not really going to work out super great. And plus at the point, at the point where I was, I wasn't really emotionally invested in either thing. And like I said, I, I switched my position before I even believed that Christianity was really true. I, it was just one of those weird pragmatic, um, I just want to win debates online kind of thing. And so like, I, <laughs> looking back on it, I'm like, what the heck? I must've had no foundational understanding of anything in order to be able to do that. But yeah, looking back on it, I totally did. I did not, <laughs> did not really have a foundational understanding of much at the time. But yeah, I mean, I, from our perspective, engaging with people online, I think is one of those things where you really just have to have a good solid dose of patience and you have to know the kind of person that you're engaging with. I don't even remember the type of people that I that I was engaging with. All I remember is that they were, they had thoughtful things to say and they made me think so much to the point where I was actually willing to reconsider my argument. Now, earlier in the podcast, I did speak about how there have been 44 years nearly, of abortion. I mean, it's going to be 44, I think, coming up on the 22nd of this month here. What goes through your mind when you hear that? Um, well, the first thing I've been... I've, so my podcast partially deals with political stuff behind the scenes of, you know, what's going on with, with um, abortion and things like that. And the first thing that goes through my mind is I really hope that the people who have confidence in Trump are uh, right. Mm. I, I, for me personally, I don't particularly like Donald Trump. Um, I think, you know, put a gun to my head, him or Hillary Clinton, I would have gone with him because I know Hillary Clinton would have been terrible, but I don't, I didn't vote for him. So for me, like I, I actually have concerns that people like the pro-lifers are going to see a Republican in office and Republican, you know, administration and think, okay, well now we're, now we're good. But if if you look at the historical facts, basically that Roe versus Wade was passed when there was a Republican majority, so like for me, I I don't I don't see the the a political solution to this. I see that we have we have to engage people individually or um, at a at a societal or cultural level to be able to get actual change here. So when it, when it comes to actual Roe versus Wade stuff, I think my, my the primary thing that comes into my mind is first after politics is just the confusion and the um, the sad state of our nation where we're we're defending this atrocity where we're we're slaughtering millions of, of unborn children by by the year and like it's it's legal it's on the books it says hey it's fine no big deal mm. yeah yeah i have been a strong conservative all my life and i was someone who did vote for trump because i said i cannot put up with four years of hillary so <laughs> uh, I, I was very happy when i saw that hillary lost as was I, and I think it would have been a more difficult decision for me had I not live do it if I didn't live in New York, because no matter who I voted for, my my vote was basically going towards Hillary Clinton, no matter what. Mm. Well, and at the same time, I mean, I, I do have some high hopes. In fact, I saw Robbie Zacharias on an event this week, and I heard him saying to someone else that he knows Mike Pence and he thinks highly of him and such, and and that gives me some hope. And I think Mike Pence is definitely a stand-up guy and such. 
Yeah, he's definitely a good one on abortion too. Like if we're just specifically talking about this, he I have much more confidence in Donald in uh Mike Pence than I do about Donald Trump when it comes to this issue. Yeah, at the same time, yeah, let's suppose everything that we're hoping for is right and we get some good pro life judges there who are able to overturn Roe v. Wade. My fear is for church per se, well, Okay, battle's yep. done. Let's pack up and go home and uh, say no. The battle is just really getting started at this point. And there are still people out there who are going through what we would call crisis pregnancies. And mm-hmm. there are still people with bad ideologies out there. And if we don't win the battle now, then a few years down the road when, enough, when a Democratic president comes in and decides to appoint some pro-abortion judges, where, geez, everything gets overturn that we worked for right exactly like it, it there's too much it's good on one hand where it, you know government is meant to be changed and we can change things that are bad but at the same time with people with disagreements people are going to change things so we can't just rely on political change well it is it is important because if you look at the statistics of abortions there was um an average of somewhere around three hundred thousand before roe versus wade and actually after roe versus wade i think in the late 90s it went up to almost 1600 uh, one million six hundred thousand so the law definitely does change which is why i think it's good for us to work in the political realm but at the same time don't rely on that exclusively now when you said three hundred thousand and one point six million that's a yearly basis, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, my, my thinking is that it's better to have a government that will stand alongside us and work with us, but the government can't be our savior under any circumstances. Right, exactly. Now, how do we go from here then? I mean, a lot of people are going to look and say at this point, well, we got those pro-life judges coming in and we leave it to politics, and you know, there's just not much else we can do at this point. <laughs> well, that's a defeatist attitude, I suppose. I get, it probably wouldn't be all that great either, because right before Trump was elected, I uh, I got a, a pro-life podcast, so I'm going to keep going. Um, but so what I think we can do most is is figure out what exactly it is the people that are advocating for abortion believe, and try to figure out how best to respond to those. Um, and one, so I, I have two directions that I've been going with my podcast. Um, the first one is to talk about the philosophy and the science behind abortion. Um, I like a couple of my episodes are uh, laying a pro-life foundation, trotting out the toddler, rehumanizing the un- unborn. Um, things like that. But I'm actually starting something. I just lay this out in my most recent episode um, where I want to get people who have experience with abortion, um, whether or not it's that a woman has had an abortion. um, It's a man whose significant other has had an abortion, um, someone who has performed abortions, worked in abortion clinics. And I want to get them on my show to actually talk about their experience. Because in my experience, I've noticed a lot of people when confronted with the scientific evidence that for the, uh, the humanity of the unborn and the philosophical support for the personhood of the unborn, instead of dealing with those arguments, what they'll do is they will default to a personal story. They'll say something like, well, you know, my, my – my cousin was raped or something, and without the ability to have an abortion, you would have forced her to have the baby. And I'm like, okay, we can talk about that, that that single situation, but that single story does not change the philosophy or the of the or the biology behind what the unborn is and how we ought to treat them. Yeah, but we do have to admit, Sandy, it does have a good emotional grab 
to it. And as we've seen from this recent election, although it didn't work too well, but many times it's fought by if you can accuse your opponent of being XYZ, the accusation is enough. It doesn't matter what the facts are. And like I said, yeah. that strategy didn't work too well this time, but for many people it does work. Oh yeah, without a doubt. And that's one of the reasons that I want to bring people on to talk about their stories, to give an emotional bend to it, because the pro-life case is not just intellectual, um, as so as often as I kind of seem to forget that. But there's there are real people that do un, that do go through these things, and there are real women, real men, real children who have been harmed by abortion procedures or by the abortion industry. Mm-hmm. You know, something that I remember thing about back in the days when I was singer about abortion and such is, you know, I'd look around and I'd wonder which woman out there could be my wife someday. Such every now and then I'd wonder, I wonder how many more options I'd have available to me if abortion wasn't a reality today. Yeah, seriously, that's that's a real consideration too. Like. there's probably a whole bunch of people that would have been very good friends with us had they not been killed so early on in their life. Right. At the same time, though, I think we have to be very careful when we make, say, they they could do X, Y, Z, because, I mean, it's important that, yeah, they could do X, Y, Z. The child that you aborted could have been one who cured cancer, but then someone would say, well, it could have been the next Adolf Hitler. We don't know. Right. But the thing is that your position is it doesn't matter what they do so much it's who they are that makes them worthwhile right exactly there was a discussion that i saw uh probably about a month ago on twitter where people were going back and saying you know um you know you you could have just aborted the next i think they said uh, johnny cash or something so you a, a good musician that they liked and the other person said well maybe it was the the that uh, the next joseph stalin that was actually aborted and i'm like okay no let's because I'm not going to be the person that speculates about the future and then punishes someone preemptively before they do something. I think that's extremely dangerous. So instead of doing that, how about we give every human being, we respect their right to life, allow them to be born, and then if they do something great, celebrate it. If they do something terrible, punish it. But we can't be in the business of of making determinations about whether or not abortion is right based on what the, what the potential child could do or could not do because at the end of the day, our – value is not found in what we do it's found in who we, it's found in who we are yeah, and along those lines i'd like to comment on something you'd said also about how the intellectual arguments i mean there are some so many people who are say once you prove life begins at conception where well, then your work is done but then my in-laws gave me for christmas an amazon tap what i what i'd ask for which i'm thoroughly enjoying my own parents gave me Final Fantasy Fifteen, <laughs> So those two work together, because I sit down, I have my tap, I turn on a podcast, and I listen while I do some gaming, and I've been catching up on Unbelievable, another great podcast, and I heard Peter Singer doing a debate with Richard Weichart, and how he said, I am happy to grant the pro-lifers are right, human life begins at conception, now, a lot of pro-lifers would look and say, yeah, all right, we got it. This guy believes human life begins at conception. This is a great quote, and yeah, they're right. But then it can also put him in a difficult position because you can say, okay, what are you saving? Because he says human life begins at conception, and it's not enough. 
Right. Yeah. So um, that's one of the interesting things about the philosophical side is if so for me personally, if I was pro-choice, I would never talk biology because there's no way that I could say that the unborn is not human or is not an organism or whatever. And, I, you know, people say that the unborn is a parasite. It's just these are biologically incorrect statements. Um but so what what he's essentially doing is he's granting the the personhood of the unborn. Um, I think well, you said you said human being or personhood? Human being. Okay, yeah, so the human being. So um, that's just a biological fact. And what they'll probably do, um, depending on the person you're talking to, is they'll either grant that they're hum a human being and say they're not a person um, and then say that personhood is found in something that the, the unborn child can do probably. Or they'll go and say that the unborn is a person, a human being and a person, and then they'll say, but the woman still has the right to bodily, bodily autonomy and that um, you can the woman should be able to abort anyway. Um, I'm not sure where that went. That was a, that was an episode a while ago, wasn't it? An unbelievable. Yeah, I think it was probably back in May. Like I said, I've missed out on a lot, so I, I've got a lot of catching up to do. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, to me, that kind of boggles the mind. I mean, hear someone say, "Yeah, this is a human life. And this is a human person, both together," and say, "But a mother should still have a right to kill it if she wants to." Yeah, and one of the arguments that, or the analogies that they will use is the Judith Jarvis Thompson is. Uh, she wrote an, an article that pretty much everybody hears in Intro to Philosophy courses. It's called the Violinist, um, and your your listeners may or may not have heard it, but I'll summarize it like this, um, pretty briefly. Basically, if if a woman is out and she is jogging through the park and she is kidnapped by the Society of Music Lovers, she wakes up the next morning and she is connected to the a famous, a world famous violinist. Um, her kidneys are being used for basically dialysis or something to be able to help the the um, violinist stay alive. Now, at this point, does this woman have the right to disconnect from the violinist? And what Thompson argues is that the the, the violinist situation basically is morally analogous to pregnancy, and you ought to have the right to disconnect from the violinist in order to be able to kind of live your life. Um, and then she says, by analogy, this means that a woman ought to be able to disconnect from her unborn child um, because basically she wants to live her life. And if we can if we can disconnect from someone who is obviously a human being and obviously a person and a valuable person at that um, being the violinist, then we should be able to to have abortion be permissible all throughout pregnancy. Um, now before yeah, you go further with that, I think it's important that we really consider the strength of that argument and how serious it is, you know, just like you did when you were an internet atheist back in the day. Because I remember hearing about even one pro-life speaker, very well known, who was driving down the road and heard that that argument. The first time he heard it, he nearly had a car accident because of the reaction that left him. Because it really is a powerful argument, isn't it? Oh, yeah, sure. It definitely has lots of intuitive appeal. And even if you were to – like for me personally, if I was to find myself in that remarkable situation, I would not disconnect. But that's just me, and I, I don't think I would be comfortable saying that the law ought to tell people that they – should stay connected. Right. I, for, for me, like, I don't know how someone can maintain a moral, a moral sense of right and wrong and disconnect, but it would be very hard for me to make that mandatory. Um, so I actually did, um, a series on, uh, the, this is a, 
a, a category of argument called the bodily autonomy arguments. I did a if, – if your audience wants to hear the much more detailed version of these – these uh, this argument, I went over it in um, episode seven. So that was – I did a – there's an argument for abortion that basically says if, if you can force a woman to um, – be pregnant, then you can also force somebody to give your donate an organ or donate blood or something. I cover that in episode seven. And then episode eight, I cover bodily autonomy. And then episode nine, I go through and I kind of dissect the, the violinist. I'm not I think my violinist episode is close to an hour long. And it's it's pretty it's I go I go as in in depth as I possibly can. Yeah, and we don't we don't mean a literal dissection of a violinist. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, of course not. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be allowed to do that. Although, hey, if they if I was still in school and there was somebody who donated the body, maybe I did. <laughs> um, so in as an overview of the violinist, basically there are what we have to do when we we're talking about um analogies is we have to figure out where the morally relevant um, situations are. And in this, this is actually one of the one of the things that I'm kind of putting together for me personally, kind of not I don't want to say I'm forming a new argument, but I'm I'm forming a different variation on the response to the violinist. And so there are at least three differences between the violinist analogy and actual pregnancy. For the first one, in the analogy, you are bedridden. Um, statistically speaking, a woman is rarely bedridden, bedridden during pregnancy, let alone bedridden for her entire pregnancy. There's a certain situations in which a woman will find herself on bed rest, uh, like problems with her cervix or preeclampsia or something like that. And I actually know people who've been in both those situations, um, but that doesn't happen until later in the pregnancy for most people. If and it does a occur, woman can sometimes go three or four months without even knowing she's pregnant. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so that it, it makes it. There's this. This particular situation is, you know, you're you're bedridden right away, and for women, if it does occur really early in pregnancy, it's due it's it's due to some kind of pre-existing medical condition, which is also rare within the society. Um, so, in order for this analogy to be applicable, the pregnant woman must be able to must be unable to remove herself from her bed during the entire ten months of pregnancy. Nine um, months. Well, technically, it's ten months because mm. it, okay. it's forty weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah, we say it's nine months because what what they'll so the the fetal gestation period is is ten months forty weeks total, hmm. um, but they find out about a month in because of the missed period, so it's usually they know they're pregnant for nine months. Okay. So, you know, fun fact. <laughs> you heard um, it here first. There you go. Ta-da. Um, so it, it is interesting too because. Um, the, I think 38 weeks is considered full term, which is um, what two weeks past nine months. And then thir 39 weeks and 40 weeks is actually like full, full term and you're about to go into labor like tomorrow. Um, so anyway, continuing with the analogy. Um, so in the analogy, the person connected to the violinist is not responsible for being connected. So again, in the, in the vast majority of cases, the pregnant woman has consented to engaging in sex. One of the possible consequences of, consequences of engaging in sexual intercourse is the creation of a dependent human being. That's just how this thing works. Yeah. Um, there's That gets into what's called the responsibility objection, but I, I think it's important to point out that we as a society recognize the responsibility objection as legitimate. If you're responsible for causing someone to be in a dependent state, you have, to be, you have an obligation to them that goes beyond the obligation you have to someone else. Yeah. Um, even if the other person is in a dependent state, but placed into dependency by somebody else. So like the fact that they're dependent pretty much means we have a pretty significant moral obligation to them. I was reading a book. I think it was 
either Scott Klusendorf or Trent Horn, I forget which book, but they, they laid out this interesting situation where if you if you go into a room and there's a big button there that says press this button for 37 minutes of pleasure, there's a 7% chance that a baby will pop out of this tube and it'll be your fault. And if you walk up and you say, hmm, 37 minutes of pleasure, I like those odds, 10, 10, or a 7% chance of a baby, huh, okay, well, at this point, I would think I'm not really um, at the point right now where I'm willing to have a baby. So maybe I won't have 37 minutes of pleasure, but we know that some people do in fact go up and they hit this button and then a baby pops out every basically 7% chance of baby popping out. Now, if you walk up and you touch this button and you receive your 37 minutes of pleasure and then a baby pops out, you can't just say, well, I only consented to having this 37 minutes of pleasure. I didn't consent to having this baby pop out of this slide. And that's actually one of the things that a lot of people will say is they'll say that I, they consented to sex but not consented to pregnancy. Uh, yeah. And I have to laugh because I'm like, what do you think sex does? Like I understand that it's it's pleasurable. I get that. Yeah. But like the body the, – our bodies were designed to fit together in a certain way and we do certain behaviors that result in babies. Like I'm <laughs> – I, I, it would be like someone saying, well, I only, I consented to, um, eating McDonald's for three meals a day for a full year, but I didn't consent to getting heart disease. Okay. No, I you, was kind of thinking, I consented to kissing someone with mono, but I didn't ask it for disease. <laughs> right. Exactly. I knew that you had that disease before I had sex with you, but oh, look, I didn't consent to that disease. So, you know, so there's a, an immorality here. It doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so continuing on with the analogy. So Basically, at this point, we have um, someone who is bedridden and who is um, not responsible for the violinist to being connected to themselves. So in order to make the analogy parallel, morally relevantly parallel, the pregnant woman must have have to be a rape victim because she did not consent. Would have to be a rape victim who subsequently became pregnant, and she must immediately go on bed rest for the entirety of her pregnancy. So for me, I'm like, okay, that – even that lowers it lowers the statistics of this particular situation to less than one percent of people because mm-hmm. you'd you'd have to have some kind of like pre-existing medical condition that if you get pregnant then all of a sudden you have to go on bed rest and you're raped like I know rape is a terrible thing and our I think on our on our society our rapists ought to be punished much more than they are oh yeah but statistically speaking a pregnancy that or a, a rapist a rape that ends up in a pregnancy is a very low percent right. Um, so the third fact, thing. Uh, let me ask you yeah. something at this point. Something that I've kind of considered this is, what would you think if someone came out with a law and said, okay, we're going to have this law be that abortion is going to be illegal, except in cases of demonstrable rape, incest, or real harm to the mother? Okay, yeah, and actually this is the position that uh, a handful of Republicans take. Um, for me, I, I only make the exception when it comes to um, life of the mother. And I don't mean like health of the mother where the, life, the mother might be a little bit sad or whatever if something happens. But actual life of the mother where something like an ectopic pregnancy happens where the fertilization of the egg happens not in the uterus or sorry because it, ha- it always happens in the fallopian tube but if it if the implantation happens in not in the uterus but somewhere else that is actually a life-threatening situation and in that case we have a moral obligation to look at what what can we do here um we can either have 
the woman and the baby die because the baby is going to be is going to cause the mother's life to be in jeopardy well before they're viable. Um, so we have two deaths, or we abort, surgically abort because you have to go really far in to be able to find the baby and stuff, and then we can end up losing one life and saving the mother's. I think that at a very basic moral level, everybody understands that losing one life is better than losing two. So for for a life of the mother situation, a realistic life of the mother situation, I think that we have a moral obligation to save the mother. Um, the rape and incest are – I think they're emotionally uh, or rhetorically powerful arguments, but – I, one of the things that I've, I've noticed when I when I see people who are either a result of rape um, and they're born is that their life is no less valuable because of how they came into existence. The same thing with an incest, an, uh, a child born of incest or a child conceived in incest. Just because their situation of conception was was rough doesn't make them any less of a human being or any less of a human person. And for me. Uh, so think about it from the perspective of if you were a rape victim's child, you came into existence from a rape, and what you have is a bunch of these so-called – and I, I mean because they call themselves this – pro-lifers who are saying that you, your life should have justifiably been ended because you are the you are a child of a rapist. Mm-hmm. Now, that's almost insulting because I'm like, you know, I, I wasn't the result of a rape. My parents were together when they had me. But for for someone who like I, I've known one I know one person who knows that she was a product of a rape. And to hear pro-lifers say that, okay, well, if if the life of the mother is at is at risk, or if you were if the woman was raped, you can kill your child. That they don't they don't understand how that works. Like I'm not I'm not threatening the the life of my mother. My my father was a terrible person. That doesn't make me get the death penalty. Um, and as as Scott Klusendorf said, I, I'm not going to get his quote exactly right, but he says, "How should we treat people who remind us of a painful event?" And in this case, a person who reminds us of a painful event is the the product of a rape. And how should we as a civil society treat those people? And I definitely do not think that the right way to treat them is to kill them. Yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, even in cases of rape or incest, it's still a full human being. It sounds, I think I, I will at times ask someone who's a pro-abortionist that question because I say, okay, if you're all concerned about rape and incest such, what if we had abortion to be legal except in those cases? And if they object to that, well, then that tells me there's something else going on. Oh yeah, they're using it as like a smoke screen or something. Like they they really what they really want is abortion to be legal all throughout nine months of pregnancy or potentially up to viability. Um, and they're using the rape case, which is a very significant minority, to say that if someone is raped, they should get an abortion. Therefore, abortion on demand or elective abortion should be legal. And I think that that just doesn't follow at all. Okay, but let's get back to the violinist argument. Okay, about a third point. Yeah, so the first point is that the analogy you are bedridden. The second point is that in the analogy the person connected the person connected to the violinist is not responsible for being connected. And the third point is that in the analogy the relationship between the violinist and the connected person is that of a stranger. Um, in the overwhelming majority of cases the pregnant woman is carrying her own child. And the reason I say overwhelming is because I have my my half sister has done a surrogacy. And so it's not actually genetically her child but she's carrying the child. But if in a, in a normal, non-very scientific uh, 
situation, the pregnant woman is carrying her own child. This is the case even when it comes to rape victims. As awful as rape is, and we were talking about that, the child carried by the rape victim is her child biologically. The only time where a woman bears a non-biological child is when she is um, carrying a surrogacy. Um, so if you combine all of these things together, um, it gets a bit strange. So we have – in order to create a real-life morally parallel situation to the violinist, we have to have an immediately bedridden woman who was used as a surrogate for someone else's baby against her will. Now, I don't know of a single situation that that is accurate. Not, not one. I've never it, heard of that. It doesn't even seem conceivable. Right. You'd have to have some – like some – the violinist would have to have some friends in some very high up places who know a lot of really cool things about biology in order to be able to plant to in be, a child. You'd have to be raped and a surrogate at the exact same time. Right. Exactly. You can't – you just I'm, – I'm not consenting to the surrogacy. <laughs> you know how difficult that is? It's so hard. Mm-hmm. Um so in response to this, I have made what I – because this is you know Judith Jarvis Thompson and my name is Elijah Thompson. So I like to call this the Thompson's violinist <laughs> with a P because her name doesn't have a P. I'm, good. I'm, I'm probably going to modify that. Maybe Thompson's fiddler or something. Um, but so my analogy is that let's imagine that you are a jerk and you poisoned your violinist cousin whose name is Junri Balawing. And he, the following, I use him because he is the smallest man in the world at under 24 inches tall. Um, he is going to die of the kidney ailment that you caused, but your kidneys are able to keep him alive. All you have to do is stay connected to him for 10 months, and then you can both go on your merry way. And you can carry him around in a backpack. He doesn't mind because he's so small. Mm. Now, if you look at that, now that we've changed it, doesn't it seem as though you have a moral obligation to stay connected to the little dude that you caused to be in the situation? It just seems obvious to me because you know you're you're the reason for it, and he's small enough for you to carry around, and you're not bedridden, like, and you volunteered to do it. Basically, um, he's related to you, his existence doesn't cause you to be bedridden, and you're the jerk who caused him to be dependent. You're you certainly have an obligation to stay connected that he doesn't die, um, and so for me, I that's how I approach the violinist is to to point out the mar- the morally. The moral parallels that are not actually morally parallel, and then I bring it in to say, "Hey, this is actually a morally parallel fiddler example. Do you have an obligation here?" And then the answer seems obviously yes. Uh, I'm curious if you've published this article or anything. Well, actually, so this is if you go to my uh, thefetalposition.com/slash/nine, this is when I talk about this. But I'm actually recording an episode probably when I get off with you today um, that goes more into this specific. This specific argument because I actually didn't say this in my episode nine. I just published it on my blog. So I want to actually dedicate a particular thing to my fiddler so that I can be more easily disseminated among people. That'll probably be, let's see, episode episode 23. So at, at in about a week or so, if you go to thefetalposition.com slash 23, it'll be that as well as a response to someone who actually responded to my article on the violinist, which, you know, it's not very good of a good response, but hey, it's a, it's a pretty lengthy response and some pretty common arguments against it. So it'll be a, 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 re, a reprise of the violinist argument and then um, more on my Thompson's fiddler, which I might actually keep that. That sounds kind of nice. You know, whenever I think about this kind of thing, I think it gets back to what you were talking about, the whole 37 minutes of pleasure thing yep. and such. It's, I think if uh, this issue wasn't concerned with sex 
and having people perhaps have to go without sex and such or have consequences for having sex, it wouldn't be an issue. You're probably right about that. Like, because if you think about, um, well, mate, I don't know, depending, it might depend on who's doing what, what, the, what they think about it. But um, definitely one of the things that is a motivator for this is the is sexual freedom, the ability to kind of have sex without any, any sort of consequences. But if you think about, I've actually asked a pro-choicer this, I'm like, well, what if we, what if there was no sex involved? And what if we just made a couple embryos in the lab just so that we could kill them? And she goes, well, can, you mean like using it for research? I'm like, no, 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 I'm just going to kill them. I just, I just, I like creating embryos. And so, and then I'm going to wait for it to develop about, you know, eight, 10 weeks old and then just kill it because I want to see it die. Yeah. I'm thinking kind of like a, a, a version of if you were playing a game, like say Sim City, and you build up a city just so you could go through and destroy it sometime or build a <laughs> statue of Legos just so you could destroy it. Yep, yep. I actually, so as a side note, I, I used to play Roller Coaster Tycoon all the time. You play Roller Coaster Tycoon before? No. Oh, I played Sim City. Yeah, okay. So it, Roller Coaster Tycoon had this option where you could basically modify the landscape to make it so that you would, you could turn a, a, a regular, you know, grass patch into a lake. And what I would do is I would redirect all of my guests, all like, you know, 900 of my guests up into this big bridge above the lake. And then I would delete the bridge mm-hmm. <laughs> just to watch everybody die. But that's a, <laughs> it's a video game. You know what I mean? Like there's no moral consequences of that. But if we're talking about real life, now it gets real serious. Like I would never delete the, the, the bridge underneath a bunch of real people. That would be insane. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what did this pro-choice or say then? What was that? What did this pro-choice or say? Oh, she just didn't like the idea that we should um, that we should create embryos simply to destroy them. And I was like, okay, then what's the difference here? Well, bodily autonomy. Okay. So then we went into the bodily autonomy argument, which ended up basically turning into a violinist discussion. Um, because once you have a valuable human being there, then pretty much the only thing you have left is to argue for bodily autonomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole bodily autonomy thing, I mean, it, it really is such a rhetorical or a pure steer because I mean, we, so many women do say, why should you be forced, why should you be able to tell me what I have to, to do with my body? Right. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because a lot of times people will assume that a woman has full bodily autonomy over her entire body, right? Um, and one of the things that I like to point out, I'm just going to find it on here. So on Twitter the other day, I tweeted out, <clears throat> if a woman cannot deliberately mutilate her unborn child by taking drugs, then she does not have complete bodily autonomy while pregnant. Now, there's a an analogy that, again, I don't remember exactly where I heard it, but um, there's a, a woman – we're going to imagine a situation where there's a, a, a man and wife here, and the woman is pregnant with the the father's unborn son. Um, and she, then the woman finds out that her husband's been cheating on her. Um, she thinks about getting an abortion because she knows how valuable the unborn child is to him. But instead of doing that, what she does is she takes drugs and tells him about it. And those drugs that she's taking are deliberately mutilating her child. Now – is uh, for the people who are arguing for bodily autonomy i have to ask the question is this okay mm-hmm. is is deliberately mutilating your child an okay thing to do because it's your body and your choice 
Mm. Or let's say a different situation where um, let's say a uh, a mother has a toddler who I don't know is had an amputation or something like that. Like let's say he's missing both of his legs. Can a woman take a drug that results in fetal amputations just so that the child can live a life similar to the older child? Again, I don't know a single person who would say yeah, that's fine. But if we follow the bodily autonomy to its logical conclusion, you'd have to say that. You'd have to say that the woman is is right to mutilate her unborn child because it's her body. She can do whatever she wants with it. Now, if if the person is unwilling to say that the that the person that the woman should be able to mutilate her child, but she he is also simultaneously saying that the woman should be able to kill the child, there's a deep inconsistency there. Yeah, I don't I don't understand how someone can hold those two things together and not be immediately called out on their inconsistency. Yeah, since we've talked about a child with uh, conditions and such, fair. Let's look at another angle that some people will use, and this one, as you know, since you know my wife and I are both on the Asperger spectrum and such, yeah. this one's near and dear to my heart. Where we say, our child has been found to have a disability. And that would just seem to make life not worth living and such. So we're going to get an abortion. I mean, that's like, that's kind of what I just cut out there. Okay. You hear me now? Can I still hear you? Yeah. Wait. Oh, there you are. It's kind of like what happened with uh, Richard Dawkins. Someone sent him a tweet and saying, or an email. Somebody got in touch with him and said, My, uh, my spouse and I just found out our child is going to have Down syndrome. What do you recommend? Says abort and try again. Yep. And what about all these people who do go out and say, "Well, if you got a serious condition, some disability like that, then go ahead and abort and try again." Yeah. So there was a debate. I think it was that actually on Unbelievable that they were talking about this um, abortion and and disabilities. But one of the most foundational things that we can do is to again show that anybody, any human being, has a right to life, not because of what they can do, which is what the argument is for you know with the disability thing. Because people will say that you know a Down syndrome kid can't do certain things, or someone with any other of these different disabilities are unable to do certain things. Therefore, it makes my job more difficult. But if we have an understanding of the human being as a human being, as a human person, as someone made in the image of God who has the the right to life because of who they are, not because of what they can do, then I think this answer, the answer to this question is extremely obvious that no, we shouldn't um, abort because of some kind of developmental disability or whatever. Um, there is a, a different situation too where – Depending on the level of the disability, you, we have to think of this more in the in terms of um, uh, what do you call it? euthanasia. And a lot of times, people will say, you know, oh no, my child has an encephaly, and the child is diagnosed by medical professionals to to you know basically suffer for at most a week and then die. Now. I'm, I haven't researched too far into this um, as far as the moral and ethical situations, but if in order to look at this appropriately, I don't think we should look at this like as as if it's an abortion. I think we should look at the look at this as though as though it's a physician assisted suicide, or a or a euthanasia or something. Because if for me, I, I it's it's tough for me to say that no child whatsoever with. A, a serious, sorry, a serious disability 
something like anencephaly, where if they're born, they just basically choke on air and then and then die. So for me, when it comes to that type of that level of disability, um, treating the 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 unborn child as a valuable human being who may be this is a better situation where if you we you know I'd hate to use this the phrase put them out of their misery, but if 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 causing them to die early is actually more merciful than causing them than letting them just basically suffer and die. And I'm not against that. But like I said, I haven't looked into it too far. Um, but I think that's at least something that we should consider right off the bat. However, most abortions that are done because of disability are not that. Um, the vast majority are the are, are I think out of um, out of England, there's like virtually no Down syndrome kids being born anymore because they're all aborted. And I think that's awful. Um, but yeah, so so for the most part, if a, a disability that you know is makes makes like everybody is weird in different ways, and so like if you have somebody with Down syndrome that's going to be born, I have uh, two or three people that go to my church that will on and off that have kids that have Down syndrome. This one kid named Matt, he's awesome. Like I I don't understand how anyone can look at Matt and say that his life is not worth living, or as somebody in your situation with Aspergers, where like someone can say, oh, this person's life is not worth living. That's that's just patently absurd. It's it's insulting. Yeah, when uh, I was at ETS Evangelical Theological Society meeting back in 2015, I went there because we we didn't live here in Atlanta yet, and we came down for Thanksgiving to be with Ali's parents. And, of course, her dad, Michael Kona, is a member of ETS. And we came down early because I said, hey, I want to go with you to ETS. And so we arranged that. And when the night's fair, Scott Ray gave a great talk on the pro-life position. It was a big banquet for everyone to listen to. And he did talk about people with disabilities in such fair. And... I went up to him afterwards and introduced myself and said, I actually have Asperger's. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. And I understood. So I said, look, don't be. Right. I'm not sorry. I, I enjoy my life. This is, this is whatever. I see my disability, in fact, as a gift in many ways. I mean, yeah, I can be Sheldon Cooper socially awkward many, many times, but... When I think about the things I can do with my mind and such, like I, I don't ever want to give that up. And I can think about one time when I was on Unbelievable. It was a debate on the Haiti earthquake afterwards, asking where was God in Haiti. And Justin Browley introduced me as someone who suffers with disability. And I said, you know, I, I got to correct you on one point. <laughs> Don't say I suffer with disability. Suffering right. is a choice. I live with a disability. Yes, sometimes it produces suffering, but my life is a gift, and I love it. And as listeners of the show should know, my wife is also on the spectrum, and I see her life as a gift to me as well. And this is why the, the disability thing is just so new and dear to me, because... I mean, just like you talk about for rape victims, I look at this and say to some people, how dare you say someone like myself or others shouldn't get to enjoy life? Right. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and um, as 
as someone who has seen people with disabilities and I've have, I've, uh, I used to, I was, I used to be a major in, um, a major, but I used to major in education. And I, I went to a few schools that had, you know, certain kids with disabilities, like kind of peppered in throughout the the classes and stuff. And there was no, there was no like noticeable difference other than if you knew what to look for. Like when we went in there, there was um, one kid that, that he had, uh, they, they said he had ADE. And I'm like, if I didn't know this, if like, if you didn't tell me this kid had ADD, I wouldn't have known. <laughs> like a lot of these things are just, you know, they're, they're, just dis- the people are just different. You know what I mean? Yeah. What, especially nowadays with everybody being diagnosed with ADD. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, think, I think honestly, if most people are see me on public, they don't really think a thing. I mean, if they think anything, I might think at times because I'm so socially awkward because like, boy, this guy's kind of a jerk. And, okay. <laughs> right. So maybe sometimes they're accurate with that, but right. for the most part, you couldn't tell. And, and I, I think there are so many people with disabilities that are like that. And doesn't it say something about us as a people that we're we're willing to take people with disabilities and others and decide? I think we have a right to decide if their life is worth living or not. Mm-hmm. It definitely does. It's very sad. You know, we talk about what it says about our society. We we've talked some about politics, but. There is something I am so thankful Trump did do, and I'm not sure if you were watching it, but did you see the final presidential debate between him and Hillary? Uh, no, I actually was – I saw the first two, and then I was like, this third one can't be much better. But I heard that there was actually much better, so I, did, I didn't watch it, but I, I heard the that it was better. The thing is, though, that I thought was really great what Trump got Hillary to do, and it's kind of thing we want to do, is that she actually described partial birth abortion – on the debate stage and defended it. Oh boy, that had to have not gone well. Yeah, and there were so many people that were stunned at something that Trump had apparently about Trump saying about the election results, I'll wait and see what happens if they if he they turned out the opposite way and such and it occurred to me so many people were so angered that he'd said this but Hillary Clinton goes on stage and defends partial birth abortion and no one bats an eye. No, of course not. Because, you know, if with the word abortion, it's, you know, all is permissible, right? There's actually a, a paper that came out a few years ago that called infanticide after birth abortion. And the reason they did it was because it was abortion has a much less um, negative connotation than infanticide. But they, just because you're changing the term doesn't mean anything. But yeah, it, it, when it comes to um when it comes to certain people, they they don't even think they like to touch the abortion issue because as soon as they like, as soon as they hear the word abortion, it's like, well, okay, her body, her choice, doesn't involve me. Um, even if it ha- even if it involves you know tearing a child's limbs off after viability, still not my fault, not my not my thing. Her body, her choice. Go women's rights. What do you think it says about our society that we hear a partial birth abortion, we don't even bat an eye? And what what does it say, and what can we do about it? The first thing that I'm reminded of is the the, the children's sacrifices on, uh, to Molech. Oh, is that yeah. people were people were you know back back then were they were sacrificing these children, and the children were screaming, and they just drowned them out with with no, uh, music and and dancing and stuff like that. And um, it, it I think on on one hand. What we can, what I think we should do, is to expose the reality of it. Um, but on the other hand, like as soon as you start talking about partial birth abortion to anybody who's who's a little bit um, 
well versed in the the pro choice rhetoric, they'll say, "Well, the partial birth abortion isn't it even a thing that happens anymore?" But no, 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 it still does happen. I mean, you could see it basically even even so the whole Planned Parenthood video, those videos that were released, she she said that if she was collecting this certain organ, um, that she would crush the bottom and then crush the top and then try to try to preserve the middle. Now. I'm not saying whether or not they were selling the 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 organs, but she admitted right there to having done a partial birth abortion. That's what that is. And for me, I, it's very confusing because I don't. If you were to pull a baby out of a out of the mother's womb and then rip his limbs off, that would be something that absolutely no one would would try to justify. But as, if it's still inside the womb, it becomes magically okay. Um, I think they think the only thing that we can really do is to show people this procedure, show people the reality of abortion, and whether or not that's explaining it to them on uh, with words or using graphic images. I'm down with both, because there are there are some things that just need to be seen to believe to be believed. And in this case, I think a lot of people are just they have a cognitive dissonance where they say, well, it's a woman's right to choose. Um, and whatever she says is accurate, but at the same time, they're tearing body parts off. Yeah. Now, before we get to a response here, since we're about a halfway point, I'm going to go ahead and let people know that uh, you're listening to a Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. Elijah Thompson is my guest. He's from the podcast for Fetal Position, and we're talking about abortion, of course. But if you're listening next week... We're going to step out of the CAA. We're going to have Christopher Kaczor in here. Hey. Yeah. Talking about his book, The Ethics of Abortion. I'm, I'm guessing you're a fan of his. I am. I am indeed. So I, I'm sure Elijah will be listening next week, and I hope you will be too. But for now, let's get back to our discussion with Elijah Thompson here. You know, when you talk about Molech, something that occurs to me, you know, I want people to get straight. I'm not defending what the pagans did back then, sacrificing their children. But I always say, you know, when they sacrificed their children, it was because they knew they were sacrificing something valuable to right. show their devotion. And they were usually doing it for something like, say, the good of a harvest or something. For <laughs> us, we don't even treat it as something valuable, and we sacrifice at the altar of convenience. I think we are worse than the pagans were. Yeah, especially if you look at the human being as being valuable from from the point they exist until death, right? So like in, in their case, they were uh, – I don't know how old the children were, but they were babies. Um, and there's much more of an emotional attachment I think to that and looking at it and saying, oh, you know, this baby did not deserve this. But at the same time, like you know, go back four months and the same – a very, very similar thing. We're not burning them. We're tearing them to pieces. Yeah. It's kind of a contradiction that can happen so many times. I think it was Scott Peterson who killed his wife, an unborn child, and he was charged with a double homicide. But yet, if he'd taken his wife, they have an abortion, and then killed her afterwards, he would have been charged with just one murder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Well, so the the legality of certain things gets interesting because it's tough to know – the individual case, I, I don't remember all the case basis, uh, you know, all the stuff, the details behind that. But um, if 
so in some cases, like uh, well, somebody just asked me a question about in Tennessee, there was a woman who had taken who had um, done drugs. She she did meth. I don't know how you say that correctly. She did meth. She took a hit of meth or something. Either way, she her her meth abuse ended with the the death of her unborn child, and whether or not that is ought to be considered um, murder or homicide or neglect or something like that is is not something that I think that we can easily make a determination on. Uh, but yes, there is definitely something there, something fishy going on when if uh, – there was an analogy that I heard where if it says if a woman is driving to an abortion clinic and then is hit, is in a car accident and the baby dies, then the person who hit her would be charged with a homicide even if the same – the person that hits her her is the abortion doctor who's about to perform an abortion. Right. That doctor will still be considered a, a somebody who committed homicide, and it's very strange. Very strange. Yeah, I, I mean, I hear I've heard these kinds of stories about uh, parents who have children just abandon them, dump them in trash cans, things like that, and I just <clears throat> sarcastically say, "Well, you know, it's a." Shame here they are being convicted of a crime. A girl just gone and killed a child in a womb, and all of a sudden everything would have been okay. Yeah, it would have been perfectly fine. There's no problems with that. Mm-hmm. You know, you also talk about how uh, showing this kind of thing, and you know, I, I can agree with you. At the same time, I do want to be careful here because, you know, let's face it, there are some, and maybe this is part of the problem, I mean, but it's been said there, you can show pretty much anything on TV today except an abortion. And I, mean, I got to tell you, Elijah, if you were giving a talk somewhere and you said, now we're going to play the silent scream so you can see what happens, I'm not saying the ba- video is bad or anything, but I would step out of a room. I can't right. even see a paper cut without feeling sick. And I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to watch a- an abortion taking place like that. Yeah, and I, I completely agree, which is why I think it's it's important for us to have discernment on when we use these graphic images. For me personally, I have never actually used them, but I've seen them used correctly and I've seen them used incorrectly. One of the incorrectly ways that it's being used is it was held uh, – there was a, a video on a very large screen or on a – maybe it was a poster. It was a while ago that I saw this, but it was something being shown to people as they were walking out of a building. Now, I get what they're trying to do. I understand that it's it's something that you know you have to call attention to, but it, it, at the same time, like murder is a bad thing, you know, homicide is a bad thing, but we don't go and show, or let's just say suicide. Suicide's a bad thing. We want to get people to to not commit suicide, but we don't show the splattered remains of somebody who had just jumped off the building. We don't hold that up and say, "Look at this, look at this," to people who are unsuspecting. Yeah. Now. Uh, on the other hand, I, I am thinking though that where our society watch because my wife told me just the other day she heard a story about a twelve year old girl who committed suicide on Facebook Live. Oh yeah, I heard about that. Mm. Yeah. You, you go on though. Okay. Yeah, so but on the other hand, like for me, like when it comes to the graphic images stuff, like um, there was uh was it a de- yeah, it was a debate that I think Scott Klusendorf was in where he what he did was he he said, um I can. I'm. What my my plan here is. What I'm going to do is I'm going to offer a scientific defense of the humanity of the unborn, and I'm going to offer a philosophical defense of the the personhood of the unborn, and I'm going to respond to bodily autonomy arguments. But before we get into that, I want you to know what abortion is. I want you 
to know what exactly happens in an abortion. I'm not going to show you an abortion procedure. I am not. There's going to be no sounds that have to do with the abortion procedure. There was just going to be music. I'm going to play it now. And if you, if you think that this is something that you do not want to see, please cover your eyes, step out of the room, something like that. But if you have not seen this, you have to understand what abortion is. And like I was saying earlier, like there, there are intellectual arguments for, for and against abortion. But at the end of the day, we can go back and forth about that all day long, but is so there are some people, some um, situations where you know people will hold their guns about a woman's right to choose until they see what exactly that choice is, and if that choice is to dismember a child in the womb or something similar to that, like an after not an afterbirth abortion, but like a late term abortion where the child is born dead, um, they had think I think one of the things that they have to do is see the results of the things that they're advocating for in the same way that back when slavery was being debated, um, I forget his name, the guy that was advocating for the abolishing, one of the guys that was advocating for abolition of slavery used graphic images of slaves being beaten or having like in missing limbs, things like that. And the people that were arguing for slavery had to stand up in front of the, a group of people and say, this is okay. And I think that's the same thing that that um, graphic pictures do is that if you're doing it in a crowd and you show a, a graphic picture of an abortion and that essentially means that the person who is arguing with you has to look at that picture and say, I am essentially proud of this. I think that this is something that that ought to be considered, um, if not uh, good, definitely amoral. It, there's nothing immoral about this, and I think that's one of the things that is can, we can easily bring shame onto a type of person who argues for that. Yeah, I, I think an analogy that came to my mind when about this is that the uh, civil rights movement, which we'll be talking about a lot this weekend, no doubt. Mm -hmm. One of the big things that helped prepare it is when you had these black families and people marching down the streets, and all of a sudden a police chief turned a big fire hose on them. And we saw this, or people who were alive and saw this on our t their televisions, and said, hey, how can how can we put up with this? And then, same time, you can think back not too long after that, you have people thinking very differently about the Vietnam War because we could see live footage of it going on. Right. Yep. Most definitely. And that's like all the, the videos and yeah. stuff that are being shown around on Facebook about the situation in Syria, yeah. all the kids being buried underneath buildings, things mm -hmm. like that. Like you can know what's going on at an intellectual level, but it's much different than than it would be um, experiencing it in a uh, – whether or not you're there or just seeing it on the, on the news. Mm. And at the same time though, I do agree with what Scott did though with saying that you – know, I think this should be essentially private – giving a warning – beforehand yeah, yeah and I, i'm not one typically who you who needs a trigger warning on things like you know for the most part when somebody you know it, oh this shows a, a regular male female relationship trigger warning um i'm not for that but when it comes to things like that yeah like people are legitimately disturbed by it. like for me blood like you i think you're you're similar to this in that yeah. you're not exactly a fan of blood no. if i if i see blood in real life like I, I can see it on movies and stuff like that but if i see blood in real life i get lightheaded which is very strange to me. Yeah. Like it, it never used to happen, but it's a recent development. Yeah, if my family sits down 
Ari can like to watch war movies, so her parents, because like, her parents like for history and such. I will be putting up my Kinder or something the whole time, because I do not want to see any of that. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, there was something I was also going to ask you about your show here, and I just remembered it. Something you've said about your show is that you consider your show to be a secular show. And, I mean, a lot of people say, but geez, if you're a Christian, don't you think people should know that? I mean, are you ashamed of being a Christian? <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. No, not at all. Um, the reason I chose to do a secular show is because one of the things that I've noticed a lot within the pro-life community is that there are – there's pro-lifers all over the map. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm actually in a pro-life group right now where a significant portion of them are uh, progressive atheists, mm -hmm. but they're pro-life. And they – and I think that if I were to make myself a, a – a, See, I'm not. I don't ever like shy away from the fact that I'm a Christian. Occasionally, it will pop up during what I'm talking about, um, but I don't make it a, a central focus of it because I want to make it more inclusive to the people that are either turned off by a Christian mass, a Christian overtones, or something like that. Right. But at the same time, I don't. I don't particularly care if they're turned off by my Christianity, but I want them to understand that there's philosophical defenses for abortion that are against abortion that are not religious. And a lot of times what happens is if I'm, if I'm in a discussion, people will say something like, well, you're only pro-life because you're, you're, you're religious. I'm like, can you please point to a single point where I brought up religion? in right. this argument, this discussion that we're having here. Yeah. Um, and the, a little bit of a different point is, is, um, in marketing, so there's certain portions in or, um, environments in marketing that are filled by something like a, a niche market, um, and there are a handful of pro-life podcasts or video, you know, YouTube channels and stuff like that. Like uh, Students for Life have a have a, a YouTube channel. Then there's a couple other ones that have YouTube channels. Then like um, Forty Days for Life is a, a Christian show, and they're all very overtly Christian. All right. And for me, as a newcomer into this podcast world, I want to distinguish myself in one way or another. One would be to provide the awesome content that the people can't get elsewhere, like this philosophical depth uh, or whatever that I'm, I'm trying to go for. But at the same time, I I don't mind if people know – like I said, I don't mind if people know that I'm a Christian, but I want it to be known – that I am not a Christian podcast. I know a lot of people kind of make fun of um, people who say, "Oh, well, it's not a Christian band, but it's a band with Christians." Yeah. But hey, it I think is a distinction that actually makes a little bit of sense because you know, uh, Cutlass is a Christian band, but Pod was a if they're are they still together? I don't know, but Pod was a band of Christians. They're not a Christian band. In the same way, Forty Days for Life is a Christian pro life podcast, and the Fetal Position is a uh, a pro life podcast hosted by a Christian. Right. I, I think one of the things that uh, you, you were getting at is that the motivation for an argument is not the same as the content of an argument. And this is sure. something that whenever I hear people say bias, it just makes me think bias is often an excuse thrown out to avoid dealing with the facts. Now, your yeah. position, of course, is consistent with Christianity. But you know, it doesn't necessitate it. An atheist could have the same position. A Muslim could have the same position. A Hindu could have the same position. Right. And I think if ultimately we can all agree on virtually everything that I say on my podcast. Mm -hmm. um, there was somebody – I think it was on a, a Facebook post that I have on my – the fetal position, the Facebook page you can like or the – yeah, whatever, however that works. Mm -hmm. um, I posted something that uh, Julie Borowski, the, the libertarian YouTube personality, she said that something along the lines of I think that all atheists should be 
um, pro-life because mm -hmm. if, you know, why, you know, I forget exactly what she says. Hang on, I got it. Atheists especially should be pro-life. If they believe one life is all we get, how is it acceptable to take life so easily via abortion? And I'm like, dang it, that is a great point. And I took a picture of it and I posted it on my Facebook thing and somebody commented and said, um, while this is true, atheists cannot ground objective morality. And I'm like, you know what? I agree. I agree that in a, at a metaphysical point, there is no gr there's no proper grounding for an objective moral code on atheism. Mm -hmm. However, thankfully, most of what I deal with is not ontological or metaphysical grounding for ob objective morality. And right. in a few episodes, I will be dealing with that. I want to talk about moral relativism and my, my podcast because almost everybody that I run into that's a pro-choicer is a moral relativist, which is, you know, figure, go funny that. Um, but – um, yeah, so I – the reason that I want to do the the secular show is not because I'm ashamed. Actually, I know you were saying that kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek, but I've actually had a few people who say something like, well, why don't you just come out right out and say that you're a Christian? I'm like, I do. I do, but my, my mm -hmm. the content of my show is secular primarily. Yeah, and I'm guessing it's because of this fear. As soon as you say you're a Christian, people will discount you because yep. of the whole bias argument yep. taking place. Which is treading dangerously close to a genetic fallacy, but mm -hmm. they don't like that either. <laughs> yeah, uh, I like to tell people, you know, when we're talking about history, biology, philosophy, anything else, the rules of how we do it are the same. Even yep. if the motivations we come to it with and the conclusions we reach are different, the rules are still all the same. Most definitely. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got another quote here from an atheist on abortion. Uh, as soon as he mentioned that one, it, it got me thinking about this one. And this one says, As for abortion, it is a crime against humanity. How can anyone claim the name humanist and be pro-abortion? Beats me. I'd love to see Roe v. Wade repealed. Evidence-based policy is the last thing progressives really want. Now, the surprising thing about who said that quote is uh, Robert Price, who oh. is... Yeah, and, and this is one of a few New Testament scholars who's a mythicist. One of two in the world out there, for all you people who actually think this is a serious position in New Testament scholarship. <laughs> but it was an interview he did with David McCaffrey explaining why he was pro-Trump. And in a memory, he says, abortion is a crime against humanity. Yeah, it most definitely is. And I, I've heard uh, other people talk, another atheist, Christopher Hitchens. I'm looking up a quote that he yeah. has right now. Uh, let's see if I can – I don't know exactly what he said. But um, he, he was a very pro-life atheist. Mm -hmm. And um, he actually ended up being somewhat of a catalyst for a couple of atheist friends of mine to look more into it, um, which I think is super awesome. Yeah. So as we were saying, like it's it's great that we can all kind of agree – when it comes to the science and the philosophy, <laughs> that this is not necessarily a Christian thing. However, I think it's also awesome that Christians are known for being pro-life because that's right. I think that's just super cool. Yeah. You know, when we look at what's going on in our world, there are so many groups up there now, like the Secular Pro-Life Alliance and such. Mm -hmm. Do you think perhaps that uh, the tide is starting to turn against abortion more and more in our world? 
I would like to say so. Yes, um, there is a significant number of uh, us millennials. As a, I'm almost thirty, so I'm kind of an older-ish millennial. But mm. the the millennials are starting to call themselves the pro-life generation, and I think for good reason. I think a significant portion of us are pro-life, um, and it's because I think of the the push that you know if if we're going to look at the progressivism as having some kind of be- positive benefit, which is hard to find, but <laughs> if we're gonna if we're gonna look for something, I think it's a respect for um, for human life, because a lot of progressives, well, if they're consistent, are generally tend to be kind of anti-war. Um, mm. Even to a point where they almost want to be, you know, pacifist or isolationist or something, which I don't go that far. But um, they they're very passionate about um, the rights of individual people, no matter who they are. So, like, they're very passionate about uh, LGBT things. They're very passionate about, um, you know, women's rights, all this other stuff. And if you just follow the basic philosophy and basic science, then it makes them passionate for uh, or against abortion. And I think mm-hmm. that's super cool. Yeah, I think one of the other things that would have some to do with it is that most of the people who are for abortion, they've cured their own children, so they can't pass that on to the next generation of pro-lifers. We tend to reproduce <laughs> a little bit more than they do. <laughs> what is that? That's like a Darwinian selection again. It, it kind of is. <laughs> That's funny. It, we, we've got the survival of the fittest ideas taking place here. There you go. That's but, uh, awesome. There, there really could be something to that kind of idea, though, because... It wouldn't do, surprise me. Yeah, we, we do have the children, and we pass our ideas on, and the other side isn't really doing that. I'd love to see if there was like a demographic statistic or something like that that showed how like what the number of... So I guess what you'd have to see is... Because uh, Roe versus Wade was passed in, I think, 73. Mm-hmm. So it was basically at, at the point where my parents were... At the you know my parents' generation, the baby boomers were at the point where they could choose to have an abortion or not. I wonder how many people who would consider themselves pro-choice either had an abortion or did not have children versus the number of people who consider themselves pro-life. How many kids they had? Because if that's the case, then you would expect, given Darwinian natural selection, that we would uh, have a significant pro-life generation. Maybe the pro-choice, <laughs> the pro-choicers are essentially killing themselves off generation by generation by just not having kids or aborting them all. Wow, that'd be interesting. Is this a new research project for your show now? <laughs> that would, yeah. Hey, I'll, I'll see if I can see what I can throw together. <laughs> well, if you find something, let me know about it. Oh, I definitely uh, will. Uh, what I do need to let people know about now, though, is Vada. You're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here, it's supported by listeners like you. And we could really use your support for this kind of ministry. So if you want to help out, go to deeperwatersapologetics.com. It's been on your site for a couple of months now. And you'll find a link on the side here. In fact, I'm at my page right now. And on the side, there's a link that says... <clears throat> Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now you click the link in there, and it will take you to the Ministry of Risen Jesus, which, if you were paying attention earlier, that's the ministry of my in-laws here. And you can make your donation there, and you can get in touch with me, or Mike, or his wife Debbie, or my wife Allie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They will make sure that we get your donation 
it will be tax deductible entirely. If you can be a monthly donor, that works even better. <coughs> now, if you uh, want to uh, make a, a support us another way, you can go on Amazon. You can buy some ebooks that I've written or co-written. Written is a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed in today's Christian. Co-written would be books like Defining Inerrancy, which I think with the publication of Mike's latest book, it's going to become extremely relevant again. Or God and Natural Disasters, a debate with an atheist on problem of evil, or Groundless, or Christian Answers, or This Generation's Questions. And then another way you can support us, and this is based on something I'm sure Elijah has learned very well, is that women tend to like jewelry. And it, it's, <laughs> it's this funny thing. They just do. And if you want to buy some jewelry, especially, guys, with Valentine's Day coming up, trust me, you want to be able to have something on Valentine's Day to give your wife. If you don't, you'll probably be in the doghouse for a bit. And then you'll have to buy her something anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to, go to my website then, <clears throat> here and go to the link to purchase jewelry. The access code is LOVE. My friend Lena Clester handles that. And whatever you purchase, 25% goes to Deeper Waters. And if you want to, you can let me know when you buy that purchase. And guys, the way I see this, like, what you can do is you can do something to make up for that screw-up that you already did, or you can buy something to make up for that screw-up that you know you're going to do in the future. So, like an um, insurance policy. Yes, yes. You, you know it very well, don't you? <laughs> so, um, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. yeah. You know, this is a Christian show. You shouldn't be lying on a Christian show. <laughs> <laughs> I plead the fifth. <laughs> uh, um. Elijah, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Um, I don't personally have an organization, but I think one of the coolest things that you can do is to get involved locally uh, with your local pregnancy resource center, uh, crisis pregnancy center or something like that, Mm -hmm. um, that does not do abortions and does not – or that will will provide pro-life care or, you know – I don't know what you call like psychological help, um, therapy, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are, there are tons of pregnancy resource centers and crisis pregnancy centers and, Mm -hmm. and things like that, that, um, a lot of people think, oh, you know, I have to get more involved than writing just a check, but no, that's like, that's the thing that one of the things that does the most impact is everybody just giving to their local pregnancy centers. Mm -hmm. Um, especially if you're giving them, giving it to them, with the assumption or with the the reason that you're doing it is because they are a pro-life organization. I think that is mm-hmm. a one of the best things that we can do as pro-lifers. In, in this case, it's just fine to give to an organization that is explicitly Christian. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Now, something you've said about via in <clears throat> your academic information and such was about the value of tweetable answers. Now, I think we saw this last political election about that you know twitter just really doesn't seem to have any impact on the news whatsoever and no one pays any attention to what's said on twitter right no nobody nobody <laughs> definitely not <laughs> no okay but, but i mean we had all these people who were opposed to trump getting up and making speeches like at the dnc and saying you know you just really 
can't handle all the world's issues in 140 characters or less. Right. Well, it sounds like you might disagree with that some. Some, not all. Yeah. I definitely know that there are there are things that you cannot cover in 140 characters or, or less, but there are some things that I think you can. And one of the things that mm-hmm. one of my goals is to be as concise as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and Twitter f- essentially forces you to be as concise as possible. One of the reasons I have a podcast is because I like to ramble on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I get out of my Twitter account is that you can do something that as long as you're not sacrificing the content, you can right. make it very powerful. It forces mm-hmm. you to have a rhetorically powerful argument in very short snippets. So, for example, one of the tweets I sent out on January 12th was, um, I said, examine humanity. We all differ in size, intellect, ability, development, location, etc. Question, mm-hmm. what makes us equal? Answer, our humanity. Hashtag mm-hmm. pro-life. Uh-huh. That got a, d- a decent amount of response. And I think what that does is it, it's, it um, summarizes essentially why we ought to assume or make pro the pro-life position the default position because it's we recognize human life has value and if the unborn is human then the unborn life has value mm-hmm. um another thing like as we were talking about earlier um i i responded to the violinist and i said i'm more realistic violinist a very small relative strapped to you because you voluntarily made him dependent upon you and are now obligated to help now, as somebody who has an understanding of what the violinist is, they would totally understand what that means. It didn't really get very many uh, responses, but hey, it's a it's a tweetable size response. So that mm-hmm. if you if you were to, it's almost memorizable, right? Where like if you right. if someone were to come up and say, "Well, what do you feel, what do you think about the violinist?" Well, here's what I think. And in another tweet, I said, um, in, in the violinist analogy, you are bedridden. The violinist is not your child, and you didn't choose to connect to the violinist. It's very basic, very quick. Um, responses to a what it would otherwise be a a very complicated topic to do, to delve into. Mm-hmm. Granted, <clears throat> with Twitter and with these short responses, you don't get the level of detail that you could otherwise get. However, if if someone is willing to talk to you about it, these tweetable size answers um, make it so that the conversation you could have a we could have a conversation for an hour and a half about those 140 characters simply mm-hmm. because of how much um, uh, meat I guess is kind of between the lines. So I, mm-hmm. I think when when people think of Twitter, they usually will think of something like you know people taking pictures of their of their dog or you know their food or hashtagging I'm in the bathroom or something silly like that. Right. But if we if we don't use it like that and right. we use it as a as a method or a, a methodology to kind of um, hone our thoughts in a way that makes it so that we can respond quickly and accurately, then I think Twitter is a is a very good um, uh, platform to do that on. Yeah, I think some we. I should learn this last election is that if you know how to do it right, you can actually play the media very well. And when oh, yeah. this, during this past week, Obama came and gave his final speech. Now, Ari and I have never cared for him at all. And so we said, you know what, right, we are going to watch this speech just so we can enjoy this. This is the last one. Mm. And I said, you know, I listen to conservative news and such. I don't want to hear what people are saying tomorrow about it. But the next day, Trump had a press conference, and no one after that was talking about Obama's speech. And I realized when Naya was talking about that had to be deliberate, and that was a masterful move 
to get people to not talk about that and talk about what he was saying uh-huh. instead. And I think, why can't we Christians learn how to do this, to make ourselves, what we're talking about, more the centerpiece instead of what everyone else is talking about? Yeah, it's Donald Trump definitely has that ability to kind of he, he anything he does, anything he says, the the media jumps on it because I mm-hmm. think in, it's a combination of people loving to hate him and hating that they love him, mm-hmm. and so so there's a love hate relationship with everybody that they, that that is has been paying yeah. attention to him, and he just jumps on the front stage with like he, like you said a single tweet, basically overshadowed almost everything that Meryl Streep said about him. All right. Like, oh, Meryl Streep stinks, basically, is all she all he said. And everybody's like, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. But, yeah. you know, everybody, you know, oh, Meryl Streep, well, we can kind of ignore her now. Yeah. Yeah. And now when we're talking about the use of Twitter, also, I have no doubt you'd probably say that using things like tiny URLs is extremely helpful, as well as you can put a link up to a website as well instead of just uh, just a thought. Actually, Twitter has changed their layout so that hmm. the a, a URL does not count against your character. Count. Nice. Yeah, it's it's within the last couple of months that they did that. But I noticed that I had, I think it was like 110 or 120 characters, and then I put a link in there expecting to have to delete some things, but it, the character count didn't go down. And I was like, oh, yes, now I can put a link in everything. <laughs> well, I guess this tells you how much I use Twitter here. <laughs> yeah, it's not necessarily for everybody. <laughs> And Korean would also be at many times Twitter isn't the finer grounds that we're supposed to use more like the starting point. I mean, I don't do Twitter but too much. I mean I I've got my mindsets that when I write a blog it tweets out automatically. That's about all I use Twitter for, pretty right. much. But I always hope my blog isn't going to be the final absolute word. And if it is, it's a sad state on humanity, but I, just a simple blogger, seem, <laughs> seem to be the final authority. I mean, I would hope I have some authority, but I would like to see my blog kind of be like a discussion piece, a start of a conversation and such. And is that the way you would like to use Twitter? I think so, yeah, because half, well, I don't want to say half, but a, a decent amount of what I do on Twitter is I'll try to go out of my way to formulate something um, that either makes people think or or something like that. Like, for example, yeah. this one that I just tweeted out uh, six hours ago is uh, PP Hood, which Planned Parenthood claims, quote, abortion is only 3% of what we do, unquote, yet they refuse to stop performing abortions in order to retain government funding. And then mm-hmm. I put a bunch of question marks. Now, what I'm going to end up doing is once um, probably – end up either today or tomorrow is I'll take a screenshot of that and then I'll post it on Facebook. And mm-hmm. then what I'll probably also do is tweet out or either formulate a blog post or write write up something or uh, make a podcast all having to deal with that particular topic. Mm-hmm. So what I'm doing is deliberately making the point to make it so that my thoughts on Planned Parenthood show up on people's news feeds on a fairly regular basis. Um, it's a marketing strategy. And you know whether or not people like marketing strategies, it is what it is. Yeah. And um, if if you are continuing to show up on people's minds or on, on their on their Twitter feeds or on their Facebook or wherever, even like Snapchat and stuff, I don't I don't market on Twitter on Snapchat. But if you show up everywhere, the more likely people will remember you, and the more likely you will hopefully at some point rise to the point where people want to pay attention to you. I don't know if it's possible to get to the point where people pay pay attention to us as much as they pay attention to Donald Trump 
because yeah. that dude he just, he has yeah. he has a lot of background that makes people like and hate him. But we can get to the point where we are very well known just by making more people know about us more often. Yeah, and that's again that's one of the other reasons I use Twitter. Just go on, add people, and such because that's just how you get yourself out there. Yep. Uh, another good book on this, in fact, is a uh, Michael Hyatt's book Platform and. I know oh, yeah. Hugh Hewitt has recommended it greatly. Yeah, I've read I read through it. I'm actually reading through it again because mm-hmm. I'm looking to try to see if I can make my my platform larger with the fetal, with the fetal position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean for me, it, the the great thing for me to do many times is post something on Facebook and then just leave it there. I mean, sometimes I might jump in again, such but it's best to me when everyone else just jumps in and they do the debate and discussion themselves <laughs> right yeah sometimes i fall guilt fall to the trap of you know basically you know pulling out your phone while you're in the bathroom or whatever and then staying in the bathroom for 15 minutes because you know even though it only took you 37 seconds to uh to finish your business you're, you're still got to be arguing with people on facebook right. you, you got some obsession of 37 don't you <laughs> <laughs> 37 minutes 37 seconds hey you know maybe maybe when i turn 37 something big will happen <laughs> Yeah, when we were talking about how uh, your position, you do come in from a more secular perspective, but what if you were encountering someone who had gone through abortion at this point? I mean, that's probably a good time to drop the secular position and take a more Christian explicitly position, isn't it? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, mm-hmm. Especially if the way that they're approaching it is that they are they don't like that that has happened, right. um, or they regret it. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we can do as Christian pro-lifers is to tell people who are in that situation is that there's no, there's like abortion is not the, a sin that will keep you away from God. Mm-hmm. It's it's just not. You have to. You know, recognize that it was a sin. In in fact, you did do something wrong, and you ask for forgiveness. But there's no, there's no nothing in the Bible that says that. It, oh, if you if you committed an abortion, then um, looks like you're going to hellfire, um, guaranteed, because there's always forgiveness in Christ for people who have um, who have had abortions. And I think that's one of the things that um, uh, the alternate perspectives. Mm-hmm. Don't don't really offer um, is a hope after the fact or comfort after the fact. Um, there's definitely an existential part there too that I think Christianity does much better than anything else because well Christianity is true and we are created in the image of God so it would make sense for us to be fulfilled existentially by Christianity. Um, but for uh, the like you said the average kind of everyday discussion about it I don't typically go about it from a Christian perspective, unless someone, of course, wants to talk about it. Then I can talk about what it means to be made in the image of God. And I actually had one friend who has had an abortion, and um, she, well, I was a co-worker, she left the company, so I haven't talked to her in a little while, but she knew where I stood on it, and she knew that um, the 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 pro-life perspective that I have is grounded in science and philosophy, but at the end of the day, um, I believe that we're all made in the image of God, and that Christ offers forgiveness for everybody, including women who have gone through and had abortions. Mm-hmm. Now, we had a Ty Binbo on the show last week, and one of the things he'd said was that there are so many women who have abortions, and one of the things that they've said is, if someone had just said to them, please don't have an abortion, 
they probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah, and I, I actually really enjoyed that episode where he talked about what the responsibility of the church ought to be, where we should um, – Instead of investing, I think you said something like $10 million in a basketball court or something like that. Yeah, it was $2 million that the church invested in a basketball court. Well, yeah. I'm out here in the audience struggling to keep my family going via apologetics ministry. Like, okay, there's a problem here. Uh huh. Yeah, like I think when it comes to where our finances go, that's why one of the things that I like most about my church, um, I go to a church it's called Grace Church, um, and we ever, our finances are always laid out very explicitly. Um, mm. What ministries we're giving to, what you know, missionaries and things like that, and you know, there's always the opportunity to propose new ones or get rid of things that aren't functioning correctly. Um, but I, I like, I like what he was saying about how I forget the statistics, but he said something like, if if every church in America offered to, you know, do something by way of helping a woman not have an abortion once every season, yeah. abortion would stop. Mm-hmm. And if if they succeeded, then abortion would be over. There'd be no more people having abortions because the church was doing its job. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a combination of both an awesome suggestion, but like a, a damning evidence against the church, where like you know what are we doing? We're spending two million dollars on basketball courts, and where people are are who haven't even had contact with the church because we're not reaching out or killing their children. Yeah. It's a, a definite like a conflict of um, of what we want to do versus what I think God has us here to do. You know, it's reminded me of uh, what we were talking about, you know, starting to show about what with Roe v. Wade and such, because uh, it was back in February or March, Mike and I, my father-in-law, were out traveling around, and we stopped at a subway, and of course the election wasn't done way back then, and so we were talking about it, about the way our country was going, and he said to me, Nick, what do you think it's going to take to ch- turn things around in our country. What what do you think has to happen? Something along those lines. And I gave him the exact same answer I always gave. I said, you know, we can go out, we can vote conservative, we can hope the right guys get in, but ultimately, the real answer to the question is, the church has to rise up and be the church. If we are not being the church, nothing else ultimately will work. And sadly, we are failing at being the church big time. Most definitely. I think there are, there are some things that the church is doing right, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of things that the church is doing wrong. And mm-hmm. I think if we if we want to have more of an impact, we have to understand that, like you said, merely voting for a conservative person in, in our either local or presidential elections isn't going to be our savior. Right. We have to understand that social change is not something that necessarily happens from the top down, but from a lot of times from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at a lot of social changes from the past, and it wasn't government that was doing it. It was no. the people. People were rising up and they were doing things and they were essentially forcing the government to do certain things. But the government wouldn't have done it if there wasn't an initial grassroots kind of um, rising up of people who believed a certain way, which when brings us back to what you talked about earlier about potentially pro-choicers weeding themselves out Darwinistically. But so if if we do have a pro-life generation, Mm -hmm. I think this is going to be probably one of the better times that we can do, not because of Donald Trump, but because – or the Republican Party or whatever, but because of the social changes happening at the the layperson level. Yeah, I I think uh, as much as I disagree with their position, the church could actually learn some of the homosexual movement on this because they are about 3% or so, if that much, of a population 
Mm -hmm. And yet they get so many people supporting their cause that nowadays it seems like if you speak out against it, it's like, what, are you a bigot or something? And they knew what to do. And so we here we have a group that's about 3% of a population. Last I checked, I think Christians are a whole lot more of a population. Why don't we have that same impact? It's a very good question. Marketing, man. It's all marketing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, you... Uh, you and your wife work at a church and your youth volunteers. So since yes. we're talking about what they're doing around me, what are you all doing with the youth at your church? I'm sure you're doing some things on this issue, aren't you? Well, not explicitly yet. Um, mm -hmm. We we were looking for a, a pro, not a pro-life pastor, but because any pastor we we're going to look for is going to be that. But um, we were looking for a youth pastor because we are, so our, our old pastor um, moved up into the senior pastor position because there was a vacancy and it made sense. Mm -hmm. And essentially us as youth leaders were, were leading the youth group. And so a mm -hmm. lot of our time was spent looking for a youth pastor. Um, the youth pastor is here. And actually I've been talking to him about, he knows that I do this podcast. He's he's is a fairly regular listener, um, and he has actually told me that he at the beginning of uh, February he wants me to do some apologetics with the kids, which I've done on multiple mm -hmm. times before. Um, but this time I might try to see if I can work in some kind of more social issues because it's one thing to give the Kalam argument, the teleological, the moral argument. The, if you can explain yeah. the ontological argument to some kids, then great. Um, but it's another thing entirely to say, hey, here, here's the the a biblical and scientific approach to things like transgenderism yeah. or to abortion yeah. and to give them real ammo for, you know, that are, that is, essentially, you know, virtually in, irrefutable st statistics or um, facts about abortion or transgenderism or whatever else we're talking about, um, that they can go out and they can preach the truth to their friends. And as long as they're doing it in a way that's not obnoxious, actually potentially make it so that they, you know, are more open to the ideas of Christianity. Yeah, and at the same time, it's also going to be something that's going to be extremely relevant to their lives because these are youth that are either dating or starting to date, and oh, yeah. issues of sex and relationships and then abortion and such, it's going to be something they're going to have to deal with head on. And it's it's so sad that we don't give our kids any training in a biblical worldview of these kinds of things. I mean, we just pretty much go out there and say, okay, here's a ring, true love waits, don't do it, bye now. Good luck. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's so a lot of times what when we have this, this these types of discussions at church or with the youth group, um, it goes over quite well, like, you know, purity discussions. We actually just went through a study where we talked a lot about what it means to be a man of Christ, what it means mm -hmm. to be a woman of Christ. Right. And we, we dove into these things and then we separated the girls from the guys and we're like, you know, this is what it means to be a man of Christ or a woman of Christ. Mm -hmm. And they, it, it really is received quite well. Right. Um, and so I don't think this is one of those things that people mm -hmm. should be afraid to do with a group of teenagers. Because, I mean, if you think about the confused status of the teenage community right now, like, ah. Uh, it's just there's there's so so many people that are so confused, and I think people are looking for a um, uh, a more grounded approach, a, a scientifically in, a informed, a philosophically consistent, a theologically um, grounded approach to uh, sex, mm -hmm. to life, and with amidst all the confusion, I think Christian our, our Christian approach to this is is going to come out on top. Yeah, yeah. 
it all begins also with the parents. And, you know, some parents I remember saying, you know, I'm, I'm just hesitant. I mean, I'm not sure how much my kids are going to listen. I'm not even sure how much they're very thinking about this kind of thing. Parents, I'm exactly sure you, if you have a child and that child is a teenager, they are thinking some about they're, sex. Okay, it, it, yes. it is inevitable. And, you know, maybe they might dismiss everything you say. We don't know. But maybe they won't. And they need to know where you stand and why you take that route. And you can have more of an impact than you realize. Maybe they, they won't listen. Maybe they'll screw up and make it the wrong decision. But you should at least present the case to them. Sure. And plus, like opening up the discussion mm-hmm. is, is vitally important because a lot yeah. of times I know with me growing up, like it's I'm not going to, you know, say uh, good or bad about my way that my parents approached this. But a lot of times they it wasn't something that I felt like I could talk to them about. Right. And I, I ended up learning it from the Internet, which, right. you know, not good. No. Uh, so what, I, th- I think having having a, a parent or a parental relationship with kids that is open and honest and yeah. has these these real discussions about these real issues is vital. Yeah, what uh, I've told people before about this is, like when it comes to talking about sex with our young people, we have one message. The world has a different message, and you can't go out in public or watch TV or anything without getting the world's message today. Yeah. If they are only hearing one side of the story, guess which side they are likely to go with. And as I say that, I can't help but think that all my years of being with church, I can only think of two sermons I have ever heard focused on sex. One of them was at a really good church that we went to in Knoxville. We had a pastor come on the show, and that was a great sermon. The other one was one I talked about last week, which was a True Love White sermon where... As I've said before, if you're teaching about sex and a college-age guy in the audience is getting bored, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Most definitely. I don't even think I've ever heard uh, like a, a Sunday morning service where we they talked about sex, mm-hmm. um, at least not explicitly. Like it could have could have been mentioned, but I've I've heard things like you know retreats and stuff like that that we talked about it, but not yeah. not from the pulpit. That's a uh, that we should see more of that. Yeah. So. What what would you like to see in the church ideally then? Ideally, I would love to see um, a, re- regarding this topic specifically of abortion, um, a more more of a desire to actually go out and learn about this. Because a lot of times, what we do is, we'll the church will kind of look at things and say, "Well, this is controversial, this is political, mm-hmm. this is uh, alienating," and we are a you know a seeker sensitive church or whatever, so we don't yeah. want to do that. But this isn't like this isn't it doesn't really matter to me if if this issue is alienating especially if we're preaching the truth in love like it's right. one thing to be preaching and then just be terrible about how you know obnoxious you are but if we're preaching that everybody is made in the image of god and that everybody ought to be respected and if we follow logically from that it would mean that 
the unborn ought to be respected. And on top of that, it would be people who disagree with us, including people who are not Christians or who lie outside of the typical Christian kind of community, like the LGBT community or something like that, where if we're preaching this message of, of, human, of human rights for everybody, that everybody ought to be respected because of who they are, not what they can do, then it would seem to open the door even be, even more so than um, just like, you know, saying that they're seeker sensitive and I mean, painting the church cool colors. Yeah. You know, I can't but think, obviously people who say we don't want to mess with something because it's controversial or political or something. And I, I kind of want to come and say, have you uh, ever read The Life of Jesus in the Bible <laughs> at all? No, no seriously. Uh, do, do you think he shied away from anything controversial or anything because it was political? Right. I know exactly. And I think the main problem that we have nowadays here in the United States is that we have we have a tax exempt status mm -hmm. and we don't want to lose that. But I'm like, you know what? If our tax exempt status means that we have to wear a muzzle on truth, I'm yeah. not I don't care about the tax exempt status. Exactly. We just enc encourage your, your churchgoers to pay a little bit more in their tithes. You know? yeah. I mean this ministry we we do a thing is tax exempt when you make a donation to us. But if the government came and revoked that I wouldn't change a single thing aside from telling people that it's tax exempt. I'd say, where it's not tax exempt, but hey, you can still donate to us. The content, everything else would still be exactly the same. Right. I think we treat uh, tax exemption almost more as a, uh, as a higher value than truth almost. Mm -hmm. In fact, that, that could be really the whole problem that the church doesn't really value truth, and that includes truth, sadly, in the area of abortion itself. Yeah, that could be. I mean, a lot of people that I talk to within the church itself uh, claim to be pro-life, but I don't know how much they believe about it. Like, you know, you can hear people say, well, I'm pro-life, but I would never impose that on anybody else. And I'm like, well, then what does that mean? Like, why are you pro-life? Well, I'm pro-life because it's taking the life of the innocent, unborn human child. And I'm like, oh, so you're okay with people doing that then? Uh, oh, you know what? Good point. <laughs> Like I just don't think people think about it too much because it's one of those things that is kept within the the confines of either political debates, which a lot of Christians don't really feel like getting into, or within the confines of a healthcare facility, which you know people don't really see that. Yeah, uh, your statement just brought me me to think about how so much of what we do that our church people they don't even realize they are so affected by the culture that they've brought into this kind of relativistic idea of being so non-judgmental and everything, they don't realize that if you're going to go out there and you're going to teach a Christian gospel, you cannot be relativistic, and to an extent, you will have to be judgmental. Right. Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of these words nowadays, like judgmental and discrimination and stuff like that, has all this negative baggage. But I'm like, it used to be good to be dis discriminatory, you know, mm -hmm. deciding between good and bad things. It used to be good to have a right sense of judgment. But now it's like everybody, oh, don't be judgmental or discriminatory. It's like, no. I mean, I'm not going to label what I'm doing as judgmental or discriminatory because I know that, you know, triggers you, you need a safe space. But um, <laughs> I, it's what I'm doing. Like, that's, it's what everybody does. Yeah. If they're if they're doing mm -hmm. their job as an adult, a discerning adult correctly, they're mm -hmm. being discriminatory and they're being judgmental. They say, "Oh, that's wrong to be judgmental." Well, oh, there you go, being judgmental. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about how I saw my Facebook memories. Wow, back sometime this month, memory of being 
in a parking lot, like at a Walmart or something, and seeing a bumper sticker on a car with a message like, judge not, or something of that sort. And I said, I wish I could have been out there. Whenever the person or family who had that car came out, it was just so I could have talked to them. Someone says, what would you have said to them? And I said, I would just ask them one question. Did you lock your doors while you were inside shopping? <laughs> yep, yep. Now, I mean, I, I think ultimately it comes down to the sad fact that we we can't be the church because we haven't educated ourselves into what the church really believes and how to go about doing it. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I, it's more often, like I think you were saying this in either the last episode or one of the other episodes of your podcast where you haven't, you don't remember the last time you heard um, something like a, a, a an ex, a, you, you heard a, a, a message on the Canaanites. Yes. And you're like, well, when was the last time I had heard like actually like a historical lesson? Like this is just what happened. Yeah. Um, this is what the truth of theology is that we get from the Bible. Instead, we're all, you know, we read through the entire book of Acts, but nothing about about the history of it or where it falls within the history of the church or what exactly happened there or stuff like that. It's just, oh, how do I apply Acts 15 or whatever right. to my life? Which is good. You can do yeah. that. But this this foundational understanding of what Christianity teaches is not going to be found by just merely applying our, applying these verses, which sometimes are taken out of context to our lives. Mm-hmm. Like Jeremiah 29, 11, no, definitely, totally apply that to my life. <laughs> Yeah, it's odd. As soon as you start talking about verse taking out of context, I was about to say Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, and there you Classic. went on ahead and went straight <laughs> with it. Oh, oh yeah, thank, thanks for uh, stealing my line right there. <laughs> You're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately, Elijah, I think we've gotten to a point where we have to start wrapping things up here and such. You have a you have a blog or website where people can get in touch with you if they want to find more. I think you did mention a website, so tell us about what you've got. Yeah, um, you can go to thefetalposition.com. Um, that's just the podcast website. That's actually not only just the podcast, but it's also the stuff I blog on too. Um, you can find – I don't always blog on only uh, only the abortion issues. Um, I blog on apologetics and blog on political philosophy and current events and stuff like that. You can you can find that all of that on thefetalposition.com. There's a couple of tabs at the top that you can go to the show notes or to my blog Um you can also find me on Twitter at fetal underscore position, and you can send me an email if you'd like at fetalpositionpodcast at gmail.com. Okay. Now, if you could leave a final message for Deeper Waters audience, what would it be? Just that we ought to, as human beings, uh, but as, as the Christian church more specifically, um, our goal in life is to seek the truth. And if the truth is that abortion is the destruction of an unborn, alive human being, a member of the human family, then it's one of the most um, atrocious atrocities, if I can use the same word basically twice, um, in the history of the of the history of humanity, um, there are over a million abortions per year on average. And if we, as people, as as Christians, don't stand up for this and talk about how talk about the reality of what abortion actually is, then it will continue. Mm-hmm. And this is it. It. I don't think this is a, a, something that I can just sit down and let continue. It just. I don't right. think it's possible, and I don't think it. I don't think it should be possible for anybody knowing the truth of abortion to let it just kind of hang out and keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elijah, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hope to see you back here again sometime. My pleasure. Thank you, Nick. 
Now, I can remind everyone that next week, Christopher Cactusor is going to be on. We're going to talk about his book, The Ethics of Abortion. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>